CBS Friday. TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free. Lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. Used to be. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is March 29th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We've got a jam-packed show tonight. Colin, I would consider this show jam-packed if we were in the middle of the football season. We're in the middle of quarantine. Uh, it is still essential personnel only mode here at the studio, but Colin and I are pretty essential, as essential as it gets right now, at least on these premises. So we're happy to have you with us. If you haven't already, uh, like the video, really helps us out. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And since I don't really feel like directing you to 15 links, those of you who keep asking about the Late Kick podcast, there is a link, whether you're watching live now or you're watching the replay later, right below in the show description, there is a link to the Late Kick podcast. Go ahead and subscribe there. And if you can, take two seconds, give us a five-star review and write a review, because that really helps us too. So we've got a jam-packed show tonight. I'm going to lead the show talking about Georgia football. Hey, Thomas, we appreciate that. We do take super chats, which is a fancy word for you giving us your money, and we appreciate Thomas doing that right now. In fact, because he gave us money, I'm going to acknowledge that question at the end of the show. Whew, man, what a question that is, by the way. It's, a, it's one of those old Will Muschamp, Les Miles type questions, so we'll get to that towards the end of the show. Also, I wanted to let you know that... For another week, we are on schedule, so we're doing a show right now on Sunday night. We're going to do another show on Thursday night, and it's a week-to-week -week deal right now. we got to find out if we can get in the studio. So far, so good. So uh, let's get started here, and I wanted to get to a debate that I don't think is a debate, or at least I don't think it should be a debate, even though sadly it is. Uh, the debate I'm talking about centers around Georgia football. And the debate specifically is the people who take Kirby Smart and then compare everything he's done to Mark Richt and everything that he did. And all of a sudden you get folks who want to say one's better than the other. Maybe you get another cant that says, oh man, um, actually Kirby Smart may be a little bit overhyped. So I'm not going to fall really into either category, but I'm going to acknowledge both camps and I'm going to tell them that they're both right and wrong in ways. So let me get into it. A lot of times we'll have greatest teams of all time debates in college football. And you'll have folks that throw around some of these recent Alabama teams. I can guarantee you from now until eternity, the 2019 LSU team should be included there. You'll have like the 2001 Miami Hurricane team that sent like 100 million guys to the NFL draft. But inevitably, there's going to be some guy. He's usually sitting with his legs crossed over here in the back corner. And he's going to say, what about that 1941 Army team? Have you seen the stats? And out of respect, you'll be quiet and you'll let him tell you about 1941 Army and how many shutouts they pitched and what kind of rushing numbers they had and how much they dominated the competition, all the while knowing the 2019 LSU team would commit a hate crime against 1941 Army if they were to meet on the same field. The point is, it's irrelevant because they're not in the same eras. So 1941 Army doesn't have access to the same nutrition. They don't have access to the same strength and conditioning. Nothing about 1941 Army matters within the context of 2019 LSU. It's the same way when you talk about Barry Bonds versus Babe Ruth. Irrelevant. 
totally irrelevant. I also feel the same way when we compare coaches across different eras. Well, what does this have to do with Georgia? And especially, what does it have to do, and why do I think that these comparisons are relevant when we're talking about Kirby Smart or Mark Richt? Because it's not just decades separating two entities that make a debate irrelevant. Because there is no time that separates Mark Richt and Kirby Smart. One got fired, that being Mark Richt, of course, and then the other being Kirby Smart immediately took over. Yet there's a Grand Canyon's difference in the Georgia job that Mark Richt had and the Georgia job that Kirby Smart has right now. So let me explain to you briefly about the two camps that have kind of formed here. You've probably heard them. I know if you're a Georgia fan, because I got a lot of you who text me and message me and whatnot, and I appreciate that, by the way. Um, some of you guys, in fact, the vast majority of you guys fall on Camp A, and Camp A is Kirby Smart is superior to the product that we were putting on the field. Kirby Smart's superior as a coach, and the product that we were putting on the field back then um, has been far surpassed by the product that we're putting on the field now. Recruiting is humming. No one can deny that, I don't think. The energy around the program is at an all-time high. The energy around Georgia is such now, it's not just that they create a raucous home environment. I have been to a lot of Georgia games. I cover them, have covered them for a number of years now. I was at the Notre Dame game in South Bend. Um, I've been at the games in Neyland and poor Vanderbilt a couple of years ago, or maybe last year. They've gotten to the point where they take over opponent stadiums. So the energy is at an all-time high. The profile of the program, that capital G there, has shifted from being a really solid regional brand to now it started to mushroom. It started to balloon a little bit. They're not the University of Southern California in terms of branding yet. They're not Alabama. They're not Ohio State, but they're bigger in national scope than what they were. All of these things have only recently occurred, really, under Kirby Smart. But then you have the other camp. And here's what the other camp says. The other camp pulls out a piece of paper on you, or either they haven't memorized already, and they say, okay, all those things are well and good. But once Kirby Smart's got all that, once he's got the energy, once he's got the recruits on campus, what does he do with them? I'll tell you what he does with them. And then they bring out the first four years comparison. And you know how it goes, Georgia fan. Kirby Smart, first four years, 43 and 12, one SEC title. Mark Rick. First four years, 42 and 10, one SEC title. That's where the comparisons end for me. Now, I'm going to play both sides against the middle here, and I'm going to tell you why neither wins, because they're both irrelevant. Here's why I would shake my head all day and twice on Sunday if you tell me that the Georgia program's in a better place now than it was under Mark Richt. The short answer is just because it is, but here is why it is. These stats here don't tell the whole story. It's not like Mark Rick's SEC and Kirby Smart's SEC was a vacuum, and the only thing that changed was the man who was the head coach at the University of Georgia. I want you to understand, I can't prove this. Uh, this is strictly hyperbolic, and I understand that, but I want you to understand at least what I strongly believe Kirby Smart's teams most recently, if I were to take them, the old grab claw machine I like to use, and I were to drop them into early 2000s Southeastern Conference, keep in mind, Rick's first four years, I mean, we're talking about a period where the SEC does not even have its seven straight national championships yet. The landscape is burgeoning, but the landscape's a lot different. These Kirby Smart teams would smoke folks in the SEC 15, 16, 17 years ago. Now, that is a product of a high tide raising all boats, in some cases because they've been on board, and in other cases just by necessity. These Kirby Smart teams today, I feel, are much better than a lot of the products that were winning the conference in the early to mid-2000s. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. 
Nick Saban's one of them, and that's part B here. This man, Kirby Smart, lives in a Nick Saban SEC. Mark Rick's first four years, yes, Saban was in the SEC at LSU and then left LSU, LSU even as they won a national championship. The overall scope of that program had not been built because Saban hadn't had time really to build a true perennial monster at LSU like he's built at Alabama. But I want you to think about this too, not just Saban, okay? Because you can argue me on that. What else has Nick Saban done to the SEC? In order to avoid drowning, everyone's had to raise their game. The overall collective game in this conference is at a level and has been for about the past seven or eight years, the likes of which college football has never seen by necessity. That's the world Kirby Smart lives in. That was not the world during Mark Rick's first four years. And so while these records look comparable, Kirby Smart's probably had a little bit tougher road. But now let me tell you why this is no knock on Mark Richt. And I'm gonna tell you why if everyone wants to praise Kirby Smart and hate on Mark Richt in the process, I think you're just as incorrect, guys. Here is what Kirby Smart has gotten that Mark Richt didn't get enough of. And that is one word, three letters, yes. Kirby Smart has gotten yes answers to a lot of requests and a lot of demands that Mark Richt used to get no's to. I've said this, and I've only said it because I've had people who are really close to the Georgia program tell me this. The best win and the biggest win Kirby Smart ever got at Georgia was before he ever coached a game. And that was convincing Georgia and a bunch of folks who thought they were fully committed that they weren't fully committed. In the interview process, in the hiring process, Kirby Smart vetted Georgia just as much as Georgia vetted Kirby Smart, and he looked he had been at Alabama over a decade. He knew what it took to be all in. He had worked in a machine in Tuscaloosa. So now you are trying to hire me in Athens and the biggest win Kirby Smart ever got was before he ever coached a game because he looked them in the eye and had the stones to do it because he had a good job to fall back on and said, you guys think you're all in, but you're not. I'm coming from a place that's all in. And if you're going to demand that kind of expectation, if you want me to meet that Alabama standard on Saturday, you can't do like you did Rick Sunday through Friday and tell him yes, no, 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 yes. I need an army of support staff. I gotta triple this recruiting budget. I need the infrastructure. I need the new facilities. I need all this stuff that they have if you wanna be who they are. Mark Rick didn't get yeses to that. Kirby Smart's biggest win was he convinced Georgia, we gotta answer yes to all these before I ever give you that kind of result. And so Mark Rick used to be held to that standard. I used to watch it all the time, okay? He'd, he'd fall short of expectation and then everyone would look at Alabama and they'd look at Saban, or they'd look at Urban Meyer, and they'd say, why aren't we doing what they're doing? Well, the answer, and a lot of you Georgia insiders know this to be true, a lot of the answers weren't answers that you really wanted to give. It's a lot easier to just blame the dude whose face you see every Saturday. It's a lot harder to blame the face in the mirror, not individually, but collectively. The Georgia face that was staring back in the mirror had a lot of folks involved there that didn't quite want to step over the creek. Like, I want to dip their toe in it a little bit. They didn't want to go all in. And Saban had forced Alabama to go all in. He did that or he wouldn't have taken the job. Smart, going to Georgia. He got all those yeses or he never would have taken the job because he knew what the expectation was going to be. And they had A-plus a expectation and they should. The difference at Georgia now that wasn't the case when Rick was there is they got A-plus resources. You see that recruiting budget? 
You check out that army of support staff, there'll be headlines from time to time come out of Athens. And they won't catch anyone's attention because they're not in and of themselves a big deal to you. It's not signing five-star quarterback. It's not hiring a new defensive coordinator. Every now and then, there'll be an article in the AJC or something like that, dogs247.com. And Jake Rowe or Rusty Manziel, they'll say, Georgia adds five new support staffers. Do you know what that means? That means that there are five more warm bodies in that athletic complex that are working in various aspects of the football operation day-to-day that weren't there before. Do you know how big a difference five more human beings, or 10, or 20, or 40, you know how much a difference that makes over the span of a month, six months, and a year? Recruiting, film study, analysis, breakdown, getting advanced scouting done. Do you know how big a difference that is when there's other machines in Columbus, Ohio, or Tuscaloosa, or Clemson, there are other machines already operating like that, it is a necessity for you to operate like that too. So now you're in a situation in an environment there where everything's peaking at a 10, as it should. And that's fair. It's completely fair to hold the head coach at Georgia, who is right now Kirby Smart, to as lofty a standard as you want to. I didn't necessarily think it was fair back when Mark Rick was there because he was being given, in some cases, only a fraction in very vital departments of his football program that his competitors were being given. So that was my take there. Let me uh, refresh this right quick. All right, let's move on. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. I've, um, let me mute that too. So Colin and I, Colin's the director of the show, for those of you who ask, I was in the control room which is also a kitchen, before the show tonight. And we were looking through comments in the live chat and looking through comments from previous shows. And I've gotten a lot of DMs from you guys this past week, past couple of weeks, really, talking about the stories that we've been telling on the air. A lot of you love these things. I knew you would because I'm just like you, and I used to love listening to stories. I thought Colin Cowherd used to do his best work back in the mid to late 2000s. I, used to work, I was working in a fabric warehouse in Columbus, Georgia at the time. And so every day from 10 to 1, when his show would come on, I'd listen with an earbud in. And he'd give a lot of behind-the-scenes stories and access. And he'd have the kinds of guests on his show that would pull the curtain apart just a little bit. And they'd give you a peek behind the scenes. It's always the kind of content I'd love. I feel like I know our audience pretty well. Turns out it's the kind of content that you love too. And so what I've been doing is I've been mixing in stories that probably you had not previously heard because I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to give them to you because they are my personal observations. And I've done it the last two or three shows. You guys have really loved them. So I was going to do it again tonight. And I've got a whole mountain of these stories. So uh, no matter how long quarantine protocol lasts, I think we'll have enough um, material in the barrel. So I wanted to take you back to 2015. 2015, Alabama went on a pretty incredible run. I've been around Alabama a lot. They've played in a lot of big games. They've been the most important program in America for the past 15 years now. So in my role, when you're going to the biggest game in the SEC every week, you tend to see a lot of Alabama. Remember 2015. Brief lead up, in case you've forgotten. September 19th, 2015, Ole Miss comes into Tuscaloosa. We were at that game too. They beat Alabama 43-37. to That's the year following Bama being upset in Oxford. This was a game where Cooper Bateman was announced as the starter. Jacob Coker came back in afterwards. Um, Bama is minus five turnovers. They lose the game. 
And that leads me to the game that I'm actually going to talk about. <laughs> That's a good picture there, Colin. That leads me to the game that I'm going to talk about. And that was two weeks later. So there we are. It's October 1st and October 2nd. And there is a big game in Athens, Alabama at Georgia, October 3rd. And the forecast looks miserable. And I don't know about you. I, I used to love playing sports in the rain. I don't like watching sports in the rain. But it became pretty obvious. There was a tropical system off the Atlantic coast. And we were going to be in a situation where two to four inches of rain were falling over the span of an afternoon. And uh, that forecast verified, as they like to say in the meteorological industry. So here's what happens. Alabama is a point spread underdog for the first time in 72 games that afternoon. They are a two-point dog, I think, at Georgia. Irony not lost on me there. It's the first time they've been an underdog, by the way, since the 09 SEC championship game. They won that one pretty convincingly. So they end up blowing Georgia out 38-3. to that's not what I remember. What I remember is it was 38 to three, like early to midway through the third quarter. So you would call that garbage time. I mean, you as a fan are probably watching saying, let's just get out of this thing healthy, really both ways, because Georgia had to go to Tennessee the next week. I mean, Alabama still got a season left to play. So let's just get out of this healthy. Well, the Alabama sideline was not of that mentality, obviously. I mean, they're the actual football team. So what happens is Nick Chubb had a consecutive games streak where he had rushed for 100 or more yards, and he was well below 100, and then all of a sudden he breaks one, 83 yards to the house, touchdown. I was in the end zone that he was headed towards, and so I'm filming with a garbage bag around my camera. Mind you, I'm filming him. Boom. Nick Chubb runs right into my living room, footage that we don't have tonight, unfortunately, and all right, all's well and good, extra point, up and good, Commercial break. During the commercial break, that's when media on the sideline use the opportunity to walk behind the bench, and then you go down to the other end zone because you want to be in the end zone the offense is working towards, obviously. I'm walking behind the Alabama bench. There's a big commotion there. At first, I think it's just uh, a position group meeting. But then I look up, and Jaron Reed has his hands. Jaron Reed was a defensive lineman for Alabama at the time. Has his hands around the throat of an Alabama linebacker who shan't be named here tonight. And uh, there are about 10 support staffers and half of the starting defense that are having to pull Jaron Reed off of aforementioned Alabama linebacker. And so there's a big fight during the commercial break on the Alabama sideline. I figure, because it's such a big commotion in front of me, that the CBS cameras must be capturing this. And certainly they're going to show this on air. So I didn't think anything else of it. I just assumed everyone had seen it. When I got home that night and then kind of wrung out all my clothes and I watched the replay. The only thing they wanted to talk about was this pregame nonsense where Alabama's coming out of the tunnel and Georgia's jumping up and down. That's not a fight. People who have never been in a fight love to call that a fight. That's not a fight. There actually was a fight during the game, and it was, it was friendly fire, and yet no one ever saw it. So that was part one. Part two, a few months down the road, we're in Glendale, Arizona. National championship game, Alabama versus Clemson. Alabama's up like 45 to 30. It's fourth quarter, and uh, it's under a minute to go. So Deshaun Watson was playing out of his mind for Clemson. This was the year before they beat Bama with one second to go. So Watson hits Jordan Leggett with like 10 seconds left on the clock. He hits him a perfect pass into double coverage across the middle, and Clemson scores what is a garbage-time touchdown. I think it helped him cover the spread. So it wasn't an irrelevant touchdown, but there were five seconds to go on the clock. So Alabama, I think, recovered an onside kick. They let the clock run out. Ball game. Alabama wins the national championship. Sure enough, there I look on their sideline. This time the game's over, and there's confetti raining down, and there are Alabama defensive players, I kid you not, as confetti is raining. 
White and crimson confetti is raining down on a team that just won the national championship, and they've got defensive players who are having to be separated. I want to say Jonathan Allen was one of them. And Jonathan Allen at that time was about to come back for his senior year, but they had guys being separated as the confetti fell. And I had someone with Alabama tell me afterwards, after the Ole Miss loss, this was the easiest coaching job, relatively speaking, that Saban had ever had. Because what happened is you had what you what every coach hopes to happen, and that is a critical mass of your upperclassmen, your leaders, the glue of your team. They buy in, and they take control of the wheel, and they drive the ship. And, you know, you're there to sort of guide it, but the guys in the locker room, the guys on the field, the guys going to war, those are the guys who drove the ship for Nick Saban. And it, as it turns out, the loss to Ole Miss may be one of the best things that happened to him that year. But I will never forget that because there were two fights between Bama players on their own sideline, one in a blowout win at Georgia, one in a national championship win later that year. I never saw either one talked about publicly. Don't know how people missed it. Maybe they didn't want to talk about it. I found it fascinating, though. Let us move on. You guys got a big question here. Actually, uh, Chris Thibodeau has a question right now. I should have swiped some purple and gold t-shirts from that fabric shop. How do you know I didn't, Chris? I'm talking about the YouTube chat for those of you listening on the podcast. And by the way, if you'd like to listen to the podcast, there's a link in the show description below to subscribe to the Late Kick podcast. So you can listen to us driving to work in the morning, unless you're uh, quarantined like everyone else is right now. Then you can just listen in your apartment. Uh, we're in boxers at like 10.30 a.m. But a lot of you have another question, not the one that Chris just asked. And that question pertains to the Clemson Tigers. Just mentioned them back in 2015. Well, as it turns out, the story goes that Clemson would win the national championship the next year. Then they'd get another one a couple of years after that. So they've already got two under their belt. And it looks like they're not slowing down anytime soon. So the big question, of course, right now, extending well beyond just the Atlantic Coast Conference, is who could step up and challenge Clemson? Now, to this point, the only answers have been outside of the ACC. So I'm not talking about Ohio State or Georgia or Oklahoma, Alabama. I'm talking about is there anyone in the ACC now or two, three, four years in the future that we see potentially putting together a challenge to Clemson right now? Because it's Clemson and then there is, I don't know how to accurately describe the width of the gap. There's a very very, very sizable gap between Clemson and whoever is number two. But I'll tell you where there's not a sizable gap, and that's the gap between two and three, because your guess is as good as mine right now as to who holds those spots down. So there's one question, that's who could quickly ascend to number two? And there are a number of candidates I'm going to point out, but then who could ascend from two to one? That's a little bit different bridge, and I don't think we're crossing that one tonight. I will tell you this, though. I'm willing to buy into North Carolina. I'm willing to take him seriously for a number of reasons. I, listen, I doubted that Mac Brown was ever going to get back into coaching at the D1 level. I thought Mac Brown was going to be a guy to take over maybe one of the major Texas high school programs, and that would have been fun to watch too. He takes over North Carolina, and he's got it figured out. He's holding down sort of that quasi-CEO, let me hire a legit staff role, and then also let me hire a staff that can recruit lights out. How lights out? Well, we're not talking basketball, guys. North Carolina football currently has, per the 24-7 sports team rankings, the number four class in the 2021 cycle. Yes, we're frozen right now. It's a dead period. Everyone's quarantined, and we still got a long way to go until National Signing Day, early signing period, and regular signing day. North Carolina's recruiting very well. And Barton Simmons, I saw him put up a piece on 24-7 sports earlier today talking about the different dynamic in recruiting right now. And for the Tar Heels, they got a loaded in-state crop 
And I think all but one or two of their current commits that are rated four or five stars are from the state of North Carolina. So they're doing a really, really good job in state. It's one of the most underrated states in recruiting. I don't know why in the world more people don't hone in on North Carolina, but whatever. It's not Mac Brown's problem because they're getting it done right now. They are set at quarterback. Here's what's really important. They're recruiting well, but they're set at quarterback. Right now they've got Sam Howell entering what will be his true sophomore season, but they also flipped Drake May, elite 2021 quarterback who was committed to Alabama, no longer. Now he's flipped to North Carolina. It's always important to get these guys on board early because they are the cornerstones of your recruiting class, not to mention what they can do on the field for you when they actually get on campus and end up playing. Elite players gravitate towards the elite quarterbacks, offensive and defensive guys. As for FSU and Miami, I don't know how anyone in the FSU or in the Miami fan bases, I hear from you guys a lot, but I'm asking you, just be honest with me. If you had to take your paycheck and put it on the line right now, and I told you over under two and a half seasons before you're capable of beating Clemson, either straight up on the field, regular season, or in the ACC title game, where are you putting your actual money? What are you saying to me? You're saying you're going to be there in two and a half years? I'm not saying definitively you won't be. I'm saying I have no confidence in saying you will be. And that's why I'm still in wait and see mode with FSU or Miami. Now, I'll tell you one that's way off the radar. I did a video, I think this time last year, about Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech's in left field right now. They're not even on the fringes of this conversation. And I'll grant you that. I think they will be. Because I love Georgia Tech's coaching staff. Really like Jeff Collins. I love more so than anything that they get how Georgia Tech football should be branded. They came in and immediately, of course, you're coming off the Paul Johnson era and you're in a position, you know, I lived an hour south of Atlanta, but I would listen to and consume Atlanta media on the regular. Georgia Tech was a complete non-factor in their own city. And think about what, it's not Bessemer, Alabama. It's not Ozark. It's Atlanta, Georgia. So the capital of the South, a city that has accurately marketed itself as the capital of college football. You got the College Football Hall of Fame there. You got the SEC Championship there. You got a ton of recruits there. It's the intersection of the SEC and the ACC. And you had a D1 program. You had an FBS program, a Power 5 program right there in the heart of downtown Atlanta, and no one even talks about him up there. So that was the first thing you had to change, and Jeff Collins has started to do that. Now it's a complete roster rebuild. They're going to be two years into it right now. I think because of the number of returning starters that they will have this coming season, combined with the fact that no one will have had any spring practice time, conditioning time is going to be limited. Told you this a couple of shows ago. I think some team like Georgia Tech, just from the sheer benefit of having a bunch of returning starters could be uniquely positioned to pop some people that maybe they wouldn't be expected to pop early. But the other thing you can do at Georgia Tech is you can take what people call a weakness for you, and that's academics, and academics being the standard, being as lofty as it is at Tech, turn it into your advantage. David Shaw did this at Stanford. Why, why in the world can't you? If you can get kids into Notre Dame and you can get kids into Stanford, just figure out a way to do it in Atlanta. I know because I, I went down this road last year and I had a lot of really, really sharp folks from Georgia Tech explain to me exactly what the admissions process is and how we don't bend for football. And I know that. I, I understand. I'm, I, I'm not ignorantly talking about this. What I'm telling you is when you've got as many elite kids in the Southeast and the ability to recruit nationally because of the brand of Georgia Tech in the engineering program, when you've got all that, you don't have to sign 100 kids per year. You got to sign 25 or thereabouts per year. 
you can find 25 per year that meet those standards and can play ball. And once you start to trend up, then all of a sudden, people don't look at you as an afterthought or a fallback option. People look at you and say, oh, you mean I can go there and get a world-class education and I can compete for an ACC championship and therefore put myself in the college football playoff conversation. You shake your head at that right now because Georgia Tech hasn't been that new generation. I don't shake my head at it because if history has shown us anything, it's that if you get stuff figured out, it doesn't take long. It's not a four or five year process anymore with the way that transfers work and with the way that the game has become so quarterback centric and what one superstar quarterback can do for you. You get that in the door at Georgia Tech, watch and see. But the biggest hurdle for Clemson, despite everything I just said, is and in the foreseeable future will always be Clemson. And here's what I mean. I think Clemson, there is such a gap that they have detached themselves from their conference right now. And I feel that the biggest thing they have to guard against, and so far it has not been a problem for them, to the immense credit of that coaching staff, the biggest thing you have to guard against, anytime you start getting success at a program like Clemson, Clemson, drop my pen, that's fine, I don't need to draw anyway. Clemson is not, or was not rather, this national power where that tiger paw was synonymous with like the Notre Dame logo and the Ohio State logo. Now, it means everything to Clemson folks, and that's wonderful. All I mean when I say that is Clemson football 10 years ago didn't move the needle a whole lot in the state of California. Well, now it does. And the reason it does is not because people in Calabasas, California, all of a sudden became privy to the magic that is Clemson, South Carolina, like you guys know it to be. They want to come there because they can win and go to the NFL, just like they want to go to any other powerhouse. So that's a good thing for Clemson. That's not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. But what you have to guard against is the blueprint and the identity of Clemson football. Everyone can see this on display every time they play. The identity and blueprint that they've used to get to the mountaintop has been a program full of kids with a what can I do for Clemson mentality. That's the way they play. That's the way they've built and branded themselves and good for them. But now, when you get kids coming in from all over the country, I'm not saying it will happen because I don't think it has yet. The only thing you have to guard against, one of the consequences of success, becomes going from a locker room full of kids that say, what can I do for Clemson, to maybe kids from all four corners of the country and everywhere in between coming in and saying, I'm here, what can Clemson do for me? Where does that manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself when, for example, you are driving in a national championship game and you got precious few seconds left on the clock, and you need intangible things to go your way, and you maybe need kids that weren't rated five stars coming out of high school to just come through, grit their teeth, and show up for you. You never know when you don't have the exact right combination of mentality in your locker room, all those intangibles that have to fall into place, you never know how it manifests itself on the field to cost you when you would least expect it. That's the biggest hurdle for Clemson. As much as I may believe in the future of North Carolina, Georgia Tech, I'm willing to take a flyer on FSU and Miami. I pray that they get their act together. They're not catching Clemson without some help from Clemson. I challenge anyone to prove me wrong on that because I'd be happy to listen. <clears throat> you want another story? I got one for you. This one is from the just pinch myself. Am I really witnessing this file? This one is very, very <laughs> you know, what I love to do is I occasionally glance over to the chat and I see someone that says something that's very, very commonsensical. Um, I, I don't know what necessarily the statement means. Anyway, this past January, I was in New Orleans for the national championship game. I was 
in the LSU tunnel. In fact, on Twitter the other day, I posted some footage that I really, to be honest with you, didn't think a lot of you were going to even pay attention to. When we were down there, I had some new equipment. So I was trying it out. So I did a walk from the LSU uh, locker room. It's a Superdome. Superdome is a massive building. So there's a little walk between the locker rooms and you got a couple of turns down the tunnel and then you get onto the field. And I put that up. Empty stadium, empty tunnel. Think I like 12,000 views. So that shows how desperate people are for content right now. But what I also did was I went right back to that same spot in the 30, 20, 15 minute lead up to the national championship game. Now to again, set the scene, Secret Service was all over the place. There's a totally different protocol when you're at a game that the president's at, obviously, especially for us. We got to get there like six, seven hours early, which I don't mind because to be honest with you in a championship setting, I make the building my office for the day anyway. So I would have been in there regardless of whether the president was going to be in town, but he was in town. And so what happened was you got Secret Service all over the place. And as it's been explained to me, see, I have an earpiece in my ear. So in a way, I'm like the Secret Service. And as it was explained to me, there are different routes that the Secret Service can take, and they don't really know which one they're going to take until, boom, coin flip, here's where we're going. And it's the same way in a stadium. There are multiple ways that they've decided that they can get the president from point A to point B to point C, so you never know which way he's going to go until they make the call in their ear. And so here's the setup. I'm outside the LSU locker room. I'm going to film their walk down the field and down the tunnel to the field for the start of the national championship game. As is often the case, the camera and the red light on the camera that is pointing right in the direction of the head coach tells them when to walk. And so you've got a producer behind a cameraman that you never see on TV that tells them, stop, stop, stop. Okay, let's go. And that's why sometimes if you're watching on TV, you'll see guys standing in the tunnel and you'll wonder, well, I'm watching. Obviously, they're back live. Why aren't they going? Well, it's because the coach probably isn't looking at the producer telling them to go. Overkill. I digress. So here's the situation. I'm outside the LSU locker room. And to my immediate right is Ed Orgeron and his team is standing behind him. And it is a very surreal situation. The president at this point is out on the playing surface because the national anthem is being played. And so everyone is in a holding pattern. There's no movement inside the entire building. Everyone's on hold, including us. And there is an elevator right here to my immediate left. And that is one of the potential access points to take the president from the field up to wherever in the world he was going to sit. I don't even know where he went that night. But that's not the way they chose. However, it could have been the way they chose. And so we've got an army of Secret Service to my left. We've got LSU's team to my right. And they're out of their mind. They are going crazy like you normally would. Okay, this is when they actually finally started to walk. But before this moment, you had LSU acting exactly how LSU does before a game. Very, very unique identity that team has. And then to the left, you got a bunch of Secret Service folks. Now, you think to your mind, Secret Service folks have probably seen some stuff in their life. And they're all wearing their sunglasses, even though they're indoors and it's like nine o'clock at night. But I look at them as I'm watching LSU. I've been around LSU, so I'm used to what I'm seeing, but they haven't. And so they're not quite used to it. And you got some pretty seasoned Secret Service guys. Once you get on the presidential detail, you've been around for a while. And they're kind of they're kind of cutting their eyes over, pull the glasses down a little bit. They didn't know how to process what they were seeing any more than Oklahoma had a couple of weeks before. And so I'm sitting there, and mind you, a decade before this, I'm the kind of person who would have paid hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to be able to just sit in the stands for a game like this. And yet through blessing, hard work, a lot of help from other people, 
all those combinations of things have gotten me to the point where now I get to be paid and fed very handsomely to cover this stuff for a living. And I'm standing here in the middle of this team, which is about to win the national championship, and they're on a historic pace. And then I've got Secret Service over here, potentially with the president and his detail coming up this tunnel. And all the while I'm asking myself, how is it that out of the entire media contingent, everyone in this building, I'm the one who's standing right here. And yet I was the one standing right there. I'll tell you what would have made the video really good is if they would have chosen the LSU tunnel to come up. That's what would have made the video really good. So maybe next year. Uh, Colin, that's all I have, man. Got a lot of people watching tonight. Hey, by the way, I was telling Colin, so I was doing a little reading this weekend. And it turns out that when we're on live, you see this little thumbs up button for those of you watching live right now. I think it's at uh, 48 right now. When we get to 50 likes, for whatever reason, 50 is the magic line in the sand, it massively helps us out in the trending sections on YouTube, both live and then in the immediate replay that gets posted. And, you know, I got to go in there and edit some stuff out so you don't watch 15 minutes of what a lot of you think is very bad lead up music. And I think we're going to do something about that soon. But I say all that to say this please click that thumbs up button. Show's about to be over, so we're about to head out for the week, but if you will click that thumbs up button, whether you're watching live or on the replay, I see a lot of you just did right now, actually, I really appreciate it. And the one other thing that I ask you to do, even if you don't listen to podcasts, look at the link in the show description or go search for the Late Kick Podcast wherever you download podcasts. Give us one of those five-star reviews and a quick comment in the comment section because, boy, that massively helps us out, too. Really, really big push for that. So I appreciate you joining us wherever you may be. Stay safe, stay clean this week. I'm always looking at the comments section for any of you who have anything that you want talked about. And I did tell you that I would get to Tom, uh, who is it, Thomas Hallman's comment because he super chatted us. And even though it's two bucks, it's two bucks more than a lot of you gave us in the show tonight. I don't beg for money, but we do take it when you want to offer it. Could we at the University of South Carolina replace Muschamp with less miles? It's a good poll question, actually, Thomas. So I would just ask Gamecock fans watching right now, and I'll see it in the comments afterwards. If you were given the option right this second, would you trade Will Muschamp for less miles? No caveat. That's the trade. One for one. I'll be watching this week. And we'll see you back here again Thursday night, same time. Until then, I'm Josh Pate. For Colin, for Aaron, for everyone else here, this has been The Late Kick. Have a great night.